On this evening of ordination, I would like for us to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will begin reading at verse 8 to the end of the chapter. When we come to verse 16 and it says, He was manifested, I believe the best manuscripts read, God was manifested, and I will read it accordingly. Bow with me in prayer. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we reverence thy name. We lift up our Savior within our hearts, who was lifted up to die for us on the tree, who shed his blood to redeem us from our awful sins, and who was raised on the third day and ever lives to make intercession for us. And as has already been alluded to that passage in Ephesians 4, indeed, we are grateful that our ascended Christ pours out, rains upon us gifts in His church. And among those gifts, the officers that are called to faithfully dispense unto the people of God, in this case, our deacons, the blessing of care, watching over the physical and material needs of this congregation. May the word of the Lord indwell all of us richly, especially Jacob, as he is ordained this evening. And may the Holy Spirit bless this congregation with purity and peace, a love for Christ, a spirit of prayer and supplication, and a love for the Word, even now, that is read and proclaimed. These things we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. This is the Word of the Lord. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. people of God, in His infinite love for His church, the Lord has established the offices of elder and deacon. The qualifications of both are found in this chapter 
a portion of which we have just read. The diaconal office seems first to have been established, as we read in Acts, the sixth chapter, as the Greek widows thought that they were being neglected in favor of those who were native to Jerusalem, and a division was on the horizon. And so the apostles carefully chose seven men, all with Greek names, to minister to these women who were being neglected. And this enabled the apostles to focus upon prayer and the Word of God while sheep were being cared for in their physical wants. Now, in the pastoral epistles, the Apostle Paul is passing down to faithful men. He's passing down to Timothy, the preacher, and through him to faithful men, the good deposit, men who will preach, elders who will rule, deacons who will do all in their power to see that the cogs are well-oiled so that the shepherds of the flock can focus on the preaching of the Word and the ministry to the saints in rule. What a privilege, but what an obligation the deacon has to constantly be looking for opportunity to serve the church so that the ministry of the Word can go forward. So a deacon is a man that is gifted and called by God, taking care of many physical needs of the church so that the ministers may preach, so that the elders may rule and shepherd the spiritual needs of the congregation. They are men who think about, where can I focus in order to help the ministry of the Word to prosper in our midst? And by their lives and word and deeds, they also lead others to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is preeminently the great deacon of his church. We simply cannot function properly without such men. And so when God does provide such men, they're gifted and they're called and they're ordained and they function in the diaconate, we should rejoice greatly. Such men, of course, must be qualified and in this section that we have read together, we read what some of these qualifications are. We could spend many evenings with each qualification, but tonight we're going to survey them. Already there in verse 8, we read that deacons likewise must be dignified, not doubled tongue. So he begins with those qualifications that have to do with character to be dignified. The authorized version translates it grave. Either translation is appropriate. I prefer grave because it seems to carry that sense of gravitas that belongs to the diaconal office. The standard Greek lexicon that translates this word or gives options for translations speaks of worthy of respect and honor, noble, dignified, serious evoking special respect. And so this deacon tonight that is ordained must be a serious-minded man. That doesn't mean that he doesn't laugh. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have great joy. It doesn't mean that he doesn't play with his children. He had better. But it does mean that through it all, there's a seriousness, there's a gravitas about the things of the Lord. He also is not to be double-tongued that means 
the kind of person that will say one thing to one group of people and another thing that is contrary to it to another group of people. The deacon is constantly with people. His call is to promote the purity and the peace of the church, not to tear it down. And so persons inclined to spread conflict should never be called to either office, elder or deacon, and certainly not as deacons. That would disqualify a deacon. James Henley Thornwell, one of our great Southern Presbyterian ancestors, in volume two of his selected writings, as I was reading the other evening, speaks of those who have a, dis, a, a disputatious spirit. And this is what he says, a disputatious spirit is always the mark of a little mind. The cynic may growl, but he can never aspire to dignity of character. There are undoubtedly occasions when we must contend earnestly for the truth. But when we buckle on the panoply of controversy, we should look well to our own hearts, that no motives animate us but the love of truth and zeal for the highest interests of man. That should characterize the deacon. It also says that he is not to be addicted to much wine. The deacon must be filled with the Holy Spirit, not controlled by substances that would cloud his judgment and bring bondage and ruin. And another qualification of character is that he is not greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons then and now distribute funds. They must be honest as the day is long. And so to be dignified or grave, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy of dishonest gain, are qualifications of deacons that relate to the character, to the heart, those things that have been blessed in their hearts by the Spirit of God that makes them the kind of men that are qualified for this office. But in addition to that, we have qualifications that indicate spiritual mindedness. And so we read in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery, once hidden, now revealed in the Holy Scriptures. That mystery alluded to in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. In other words, the deacon is to know, to grasp, to understand something of the height and depth and breadth and length of what it means that God has done for us this great work of redemption through Christ our Lord. His commitment to the gospel is therefore productive of a pure life. It's wrong to think that elders only should have a depth of understanding theologically. That simply is not correct. How will the deacons promote the work of the ministers and ruling elders and the life of this flock if they do not also hold these things dear, study these truths, and love them from their souls? How can anyone be godly without learning biblical doctrine and applying it to life? And this applies to us all, but very pointedly to the officers of the church. But they also are called to be experienced men. In verse 10, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. I have known of churches who ordain men to office in order to get them involved. 
Well, that is completely the reverse of what the Apostle Paul would teach. They must prove themselves blameless. We should be able to observe their lives over time before they are ordained to office. So all of these things, the man qualified for service as deacon knows experientially, knows in the depths of his soul. But in addition to those qualifications, there also are domestic requirements that we find in this text. Uh, Interestingly enough, the deacon must have a qualified wife. And so we read in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, the word here that is translated wives could also be translated women. And some think it means that the office of deacon is open to women. But I see nothing in the scripture that indicates this. This is the household of faith, and just as the home, the household, is to be led by a godly man, so the Lord calls godly men to lead in his church. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles selected seven men of good reputation, and these men were called to minister to women's needs. Now, in 1 Timothy 3.12, we read that the deacons must be the husband of one wife, which show the reason or the connection with wives in verse 11. Do you see the flow? Paul has spoken of the deacon in verses 8 through 10. Then females in verse 11, returning to the title of deacon in verse 12. The term likewise in verse 11 puts women in a different category in the text. And so verse 11 is an intrusion into the discussion of deacons because he sees these women mentioned as relating to the comment that the deacon is to be the husband of one wife. So what Paul is saying to us here, if we can just unpack it in terms of the practical work of the deacon, is that here are your qualifications, deacon, and oh, also your wives may often be involved in your work, uh, in visits, in calls to other women, that they as well, therefore, must be dignified. There is a certain gravitas about their lives not slanderers, sober, which means sound-minded. It's a favorite word in the pastoral epistles. And they must be faithful. And having said that, we are to realize also the domestic requirement that you, deacon, are to be the husband of one wife. We read that here in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, this really means a one woman's man. This woman is your helper, and you are to be faithful to her. Now, a clear application of this would be just to think through the reality that the deacon must beware of those acts of service as a deacon that will bring him I speak to you deacons that will bring you into contact with a needy woman and that your sinful heart might be drawn inappropriately to the needy woman. And so you are called to use wisdom and sanctified common sense. And I remember one of the Puritans saying, not that necessarily adultery is always going to be the implication, but it could be, 
that what keeps you from adultery is not having a wife, but loving a wife. And so the deacon is called here to be a one woman's man, to love his wife. Though we love all people, that man is to love his wife as a wife and to love her exclusively. One has said, the home is the proving ground of officers. And so, congregation, as you select deacons, and as we look for others who have qualifications as time goes on, do not forget to inspect in a gracious way the prospective deacon's home life. He cannot save his children. No one can regenerate his little son or daughter. He cannot save his children, but he can and must lead them in the ways of the Lord and love his wife and in this be exemplary. And so we expect to go into the deacon's home and find that regularly he is having family worship and that when he rises and in the day and when he goes to bed at night, he is speaking the word of God to his children. But the text also offers two encouragements for deacons. Did you see that? Deacons who serve well receive two encouragements. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so the deacon that serves well obtains a good standing, the deacon having served faithfully and done his best, honoring God among the people of God will be honored by the true people of God. That's as it should be. All the glory goes to God, but the man who serves faithfully is to be honored by us, and that is our call. So, deacons, use that honorable position to bring others closer to the Lord, to bind together the people of God in the purity of the gospel and in the peace that should ensue. But also, another encouragement that is found in verse 13 is that he has great confidence in the faith. Boldness and assurance is what is spoken of here. Stephen shared this in the book of Acts. Boldness in the truth. Boldness in prayer, boldness in witness. Our deacons should be among the most spiritually minded men in our congregation who have absolute confidence in the Word of God, confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that helps us all to move forward in the faith as a flock under the rule of our sovereign head and King, Jesus Christ. So those are the qualifications, and I want to bring a few conclusions before we press on now to the ordination. I want to ask the question, first of all, why this office is important? Why does it matter? And I'm looking at verses 14 and 15 for the answer. I hope to come to you soon, says Paul but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul could not be there personally. Paul is telling the church how to conduct itself. And so if we do not preach these sections, 
how will we know how to conduct ourselves? How will we know what the order is that is divinely given in Holy Scripture if we do not study these passages? How do we know what the structure of the household of God should be? Because it is God's house. That's what it's called. God dwells in us. The Spirit of God is within us. It is God's house. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and the you here is plural, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. My friend who now is in heaven, George Knight III, said this, to remind the church that it is a structure called to uphold the truth of Christianity is also to remind it that it is a household called to manifest that truth in its conduct and to conform to it. Timothy and the church will conduct their lives appropriately if they remember that they are the home built and owned by God and indwelt by Him as the living one, and also remember that they are called to undergird and hold aloft God's truth in word and deed. That's why this office is important. And that therefore calls us, when we think of office in the church, the ministers of the word, the officers who rule, the elders, the deacons who serve in these ways, it calls us to be rid of a low view of the church. It is the highest privilege to be a part of God's household, the highest privilege to belong to the church. The Spirit of God indwells us with His glory. Angels strain to see what is happening in our midst, what Christ is doing in your lives and in this congregation. E.K. Simpson said, the church's presence testifies to things unseen as yet. And so when Jacob serves as a deacon in this congregation, and some of that service may seem to us to be an everyday need, um, uh, an older woman who needs a light bulb changed, uh, a budget that needs to be put together, um, the encouragement of a child in learning how to serve others because the deacons are demonstrating that in all of these things there's something glorious something marvelous something wonderful the holy spirit is at work christ is ruling and reigning through it all things yet unseen that we will know when we go into glory when we enter into heaven are being done through those simple acts of service it's a wonderful thing. So when we leave here tonight, we should contemplate our privilege to be part of the organism, the organization, the structure, the worship, the work of the people of God in the local church. And as we strive together to send the gospel to the four corners of the earth, it's the glorious body of Christ. It may not seem that way to us, but we walk by faith and not by sight, and the church is the glorious body of Christ. We should have the highest view 
of the church. And then all office in the church is summed up in Christ. I mean, this is simply axiomatic, isn't it? That he is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king. He ultimately, therefore, is the minister of the word who takes the word and effectually applies it to the hearts and lives of his elect. He is the ruler of his church and the one who dispenses mercy. He is the chief deacon then. Christ in this earth showed his diaconal stance. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the deacon's model that he follows is the model of the Savior who shed his blood and redeemed us from our sins and served us to the utmost. Oh, indeed, that is wonderful. How he served us all the way to the cross. And that means, therefore, that whether one is a minister of the word, whether one is an elder, a deacon, or the office of believer that all of us hold who are members of the church, that we are to be lively in our service. That there should, should not be a time in which, though we might grow weary, we should not grow weary in well-doing. That sometimes we might say, um, I'm tired in the service of God, but I am not tired of the service of God. And our living, vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ should make us, should make us truly and biblically enthusiastic about fulfilling our call as God has put us in various places in his body. But now, let me speak to my unbelieving friend who might be here tonight, and you're beholding this, this service in which we ordain a deacon, and maybe these things are strange to you. Jesus Christ himself being the chief deacon, I want you to know and to understand that when Christ returns, he will not come back as chief deacon, holding out mercy, but he will come back as king whose mercy has been spurned. Bow now before this king, come to him by faith, and own him as your Lord. Amen and amen.